You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, I'd love to, to meet you after service today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open there or turn your app on, and let's look at this text together. As we get ready to jump into the text, um, I had, I'm going to deal with a couple of questions that have been submitted uh, through our mobile app. Um, we love for you to ask questions, church. It, it fuels um, growth and knowledge and education. And so um, we don't want to be a cult. We don't want you to just blindly follow things. If you have questions, we want you to a- ask them. And so one of the questions that was submitted um, talks about this. It says, uh, the writer submits the question and says, I hear a lot of Christians encouraging others that when things are at the worst and you're facing huge struggles, it means that you're being tested before receiving big blessings. Is there any biblical evidence to that? Or is it just a cliche canned response? Because we don't want to admit that for some life is just an ongoing struggle. Um, this is a fitting question for today because Peter's going to be writing, um, or what we're going to see in the text today is that Peter's writing speaks to our conduct and our witness and our hope in the midst of suffering. Um, and, and so when, when we try to encourage one another in suffering, sometimes we do so with good intentions, but ill-informed on reality. And what I mean by that is that, yes, um, for some, life is an ongoing struggle. There are, there are many who are just going to struggle continually, and, and the Bible doesn't actually promise that things are all going to get better in this lifetime. We have a promise of an eternal inheritance that is, that is beyond what we could ever imagine in this life, um, but, but for this life in, in our timeline, um, we're not guaranteed health, wealth, or prosperity. Um, the Bible actually promises the opposite. The Bible promises suffering and persecution, and I know that's a bleak message, and it's maybe not the most popular message. But I want you to see that that's the reality of it. Now, uh, what the Bible does, it lifts our eyes to something higher. We use that language a lot at our church because we understand that the Bible is constantly taking our minds and attention off of fleshly and worldly things and rather lifting our eyes to spiritual things. And so as Christians, we don't rest our hope in in getting over a sickness that's in our body or getting out of a financial uh, burden that we're in right now. We don't rest our hope in that. Rather, we rest our hope in spiritual victory. And, and so that means that sometimes, yeah, we're going to be set free from struggles and suffering, and sometimes not. Uh, James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so God is not tempting us, but God does allow us as his children to enter into suffering, knowing that ultimately it will work for our benefit in our edification and his glory. And this is exactly the topic that Peter writes about that I want to preach on today. And I have four points for you, all revolving around keeping your witness pure in, in these types of situations. Number one, we'll look at our witness in relationships. Secondly, um, our witness in suffering. How can we maintain a Christian testimony when specifically? We are suffering or hurting or in pain. Um, Then we'll look at the witness of Christ and the fact that that he suffered for us. And then uh, finally, we will look at the witness of baptism. Uh, Let's look first at our relationships. I want you to think through in your your own minds and in your own lives uh, the relationships that you have. Maybe most logical to begin is, is in your romantic relationships, if you have one of those. By the way, it's Valentine's Day tomorrow. Men, you're welcome for that reminder. You can tip me later. Um, but 
we, we, we can start there, look at our marriages or our, our significant other, um, but then branch out from there and look at your maybe familial relationships, your, the family you live with or your parents or your children or your aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, then branch out further and think about relationships that you have with people in your career that you work with, relationships with people that maybe you're acquaintances with or you share hobbies with. Um, and then maybe some relationships that don't even really feel like relationships to you at all, but they're just people that you interact with um, somewhat occasionally. Even the things that are minute are still relationships, and the Bible calls us to maintain a Christian witness in all of those relationships. And, and if, if we think that that's overwhelming, social media has added even a new element of relationship to that because we think, okay, well, I'm on a keyboard and, and, and perceived through a screen or someone's mobile app, and so then it doesn't matter what I act like. But it does matter. The Bible speaks about maintaining our witness in all of these realms and all of these relationships. And it's easy for us to let our guard down, isn't it? Kind of give up on that witness, um, especially dealing with car salesmen. I, I bought a truck recently, and, I, and I, I confessed in a very vulnerable way to my small group, which I'm not going to do from stage and while there's a live audience viewing. Um, but I went, I went off on, on a, a guy at a car dealership and, um, and really went further than I needed to. Um, I, I felt like I was wronged, and, and there was a part of me in that moment that told myself I was justified, but ultimately I sinned and went too far. But then I was kind of trying to justify my sin, like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, they don't know who I am. I'm just, you know, I'm just a guy buying a truck here. They're not going to see me anymore, whatever. And, um, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm going to the salesman's office and start to sign papers. He's like, aren't you a pastor somewhere? <laughs> Then I go into the next office to do the financing. The financial guy's like, hey, don't you pastor New Heights? Like, he knew the exact church. And I'm just like, oh, my Lord. And, um, and so you begin to realize that your witness does matter. And, and that's not just for pastors either. And, and Peter tells us that we need to keep these five attributes in mind. In all of these relationships, in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you, no exceptions, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The reality is, is when we let um, things conflate us and, and take us out of self-control, we yield to our flesh and let that control us rather than allowing the Spirit to bring about these attributes. And there's a difference between just showing these qualities and being marked by these qualities. The Bible tells us we should be marked by these things. And then in verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil. So it doesn't matter what's happened to you. It doesn't matter if you think it's justified or not. It doesn't matter if the person you're going off on and yelling at is absolutely wrong. You're not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He says, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He echoes the teaching of Jesus saying that when you're mistreated or criticized or treated unfairly, you don't return cursing, rather you return blessing. Um, at the dealership, I had to just be like, all right, I've lost my cool. I had to go for a walk in the snow, <laughs> in the dark. I just walked around the block and came back, calmed down and apologized because that's what the spirit compels us to do. Swallow our pride and say, even if I'm, even if I'm 100% right, I'm going to yield and, and be a blessing rather than a cursing. And Peter always um, backs up his claims by Scripture, um, which is just a sidebar, is a good rule of thumb. Um, when you're listening to preachers, if they're, if they're teaching you principles or values or things and they're not rooted in the Bible, then don't take their advice. Um, but here Peter roots what he's saying in, uh, in quoting the Bible. He quotes from Psalm 34, 
It's really a verbatim quote, so instead of reading from Psalm 34, um, I want to read just what Peter says. He he quotes the psalmist, and he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him do this. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And I just want you to, as as we look through these verses, just ask yourself, do do you allow your lips and your tongue to speak evil and deceit about other people? Verse 11 says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I want you to ask yourself today, are there people that deep down you're wishing evil on? Are you rejoicing when bad things happen to others? The Bible here is making it very clear that you will not see good days for yourself. You're called to uphold your witness in every interaction, in every relationship, and bless others when they curse you. You know what blessing them means? That's not just saying, God bless you. That's not just church language. Like, you know, when old ladies say, bless them, Lord, they really mean they're pitiful. That's like, that's the translation. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. Peter is saying, when, you, when you're saying that you're blessing them, that means you're praying for people who are against you. Now, if I'm, if I'm honest, sometimes it's hard to pray for people who are for me, let alone people who are against me. The Bible's calling all of you to pray for those who are against you. And so we maintain a witness in relationships. Secondly, we see a witness in suffering. This, is, this idea is especially pertinent for the Gentiles that Peter's writing to because they're being persecuted at this time. And and the Bible speaks of a couple different kinds of suffering, one at the hands of persecutors. I believe this is something, by and large, we don't really know much about. Um, We're we're not being arrested and beheaded for for trying to gather in worship today. Um, But but the Gentile writers, or the Gentile readers in the first century would have understood this and and really felt what, what Peter was getting at here. That's the main thing that Peter's writing to. But I think the principles that we'll look at today also apply to suffering that comes not at the hands of persecutors, but at the hands of circumstances. Because many of us are suffering today, not because someone's been mean to us, but because life has been mean to us. Because the fallen world that we live in just feels so unfair. And when you're treated unfairly by people or by circumstances, Christian, you're still called to uphold your witness. Your testimony, your faith is all still in place. Verse 13, he says, now who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So Peter's telling them to not fear their persecutors. This means that you're not to be afraid of the circumstances that bring suffering to your door. You are triumphant in Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. Do not be afraid. Do not shrink back in terror, but rather stand boldly in the gospel, knowing that the gospel brings victory to you spiritually forever, and nobody can touch that. Your soul is invincible. Have no fear. How could you be fearful? Now listen, I understand fear is a a very human attribute. It's natural for us to be afraid of things. And Peter actually goes into the witness aspect that while we are suffering, we are also supposed to be a witness to the gospel, telling others of the gospel, giving answers to people who have questions about our faith. 
Well, what's the, what's the biggest reason we don't share our faith? What's the biggest reason we don't invite people to come to church with us? What's the biggest reason we don't invite them into our faith family? It's fear. That's fear for maybe different reasons. Some of us are afraid of an awkward conversation. Some of us are afraid of what people might think of us. Some of us are afraid of being asked a question we don't know the answer to. But at the root of all of it is fear. And Peter says, have no fear. You've been saved by Jesus. What is there to be afraid of? Verse 15, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy. Always. That doesn't mean on Sundays when Chick-fil-A is closed, by the way. Um, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so make a defense is what Peter says. Uh, This could also be translated give an answer. This phrase is apologia in Greek. It's where we get the word apologetics from. And apologetics is the systematic defense of the Christian faith. Now, apologetics is important. What this means is it's important for you to have a working knowledge of the Bible. Not just pastors, not just seminary graduates. Uh, Christians are to have a working knowledge of the Bible. Does this mean you have to know everything? Not a chance. Does this mean you have to be able to articulate the highest and, and deepest theological ideas? No way. But should you be able to give a reason as to why you love Jesus? Absolutely. No one's exempt from that. And Peter says to do that with gentleness and respect. A lot of people who love apologetics just love to argue. Just love to debate and fight all the time. Um, and that's, that's not what God's calling us to here. <clears throat> See, skeptics and antagonists uh, deserve our, gen- our genuine, gentle nature and respect. And so in the name of apologetics in verse 15, we can't throw out verse 8, which tells us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble mind. It means we've got to be ready at all times. Because people are watching us. People will take notice. D.L. Moody famously said, out of 100 men, one of them will read the Bible. The other 99 will read the Christian. People will look at your lives and there will be opportunities for you to share hope with them. And so as we look at the hope and holiness of Peter's letters, he's saying you live a holy life that leads to opportunities for you to share hope with people. And if you're going through life and you're saying, hey, I just know I've. I'm looking, Pastor, but I never have an opportunity to share the gospel. I never have an opportunity to invite people to church. Maybe you're not living very holy. Peter says, be ready to give an answer when people ask you for the hope that's in you. I shared the gospel this week with a Hindu. It's not every week that I get to talk to a Hindu. But I got to talk to a Hindu, and, um, and I told him I was a pastor, and we started, we started conversing about that. And he said, you know, I've, I've really only had a, a real conversation with a Christian one time. And he was a pastor too. And he got very angry at me. And I said, like, really, I'm sorry that happened. Why, why did he get mad at you? And he said, because I didn't know the resurrection was a thing. He said, I didn't know that Christians believed in a resurrection. I just, I just thought you guys followed the, the, you know, the red letters in the Bible, the teaching of Jesus. I didn't know that y'all claimed he rose from the dead. And, um, and he's like, is that what Easter is? Like, he was just totally uh, ignorant of the resurrection. I'm like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of the whole basis of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus, is that he is God and he rose from the dead. And so we began to talk about that. And, and I, I was, I, you know, I'd already kind of prepped this sermon. I was thinking that, that in my apologetic, my defense of Christianity to him, that Jesus didn't need me to be his attorney. Jesus wanted me to be his ambassador to advocate for the faith to this unbeliever, 
not to argue with him. He had had enough arguing with Christians already. And one of the things he said to me uh, before we parted ways, he said, you seem very confident. <laughs> I took that as a compliment. He said, you seem very confident. I said, well, I am. Because I have a hope. You see, when the Bible talks of hope, it talks of hope as a divine certainty. Uh, a pastor in, uh, in Paris named Philip Moore, he said this one time, and I thought it was just great. I wrote it down. Um, he defined hope as thankfulness in the future. Isn't that good? Hope is thankfulness in the future. You see, thankfulness is acknowledging something in the past and being grateful and thankful for it. Hope is knowing with certainty that something will happen in the future, and you're thankful for it in the future. And that's the kind of hope that the Bible speaks of. And when Peter says that people are going to take notice of your life and ask you about the hope that's within you, this is the kind of hope that we are praying that people see in our lives, that we see a confidence in our own lives that leads to them saying, how can I get this confidence? And when we live in this certainty, people will take notice. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And the, the reality in verse 17 is, hard, is a hard pill for us to swallow. But what the Bible is telling us here is that it might be God's will for you to suffer. Is that hard to hear? Of course it is. That, that a loving Heavenly Father who knows us, loves us, saves us, cares for us, would willingly allow us to suffer. I mean, I think of my own kids. If, it, if there was anything going on in their life that would cause them suffering, not just like some discomfort or some awkwardness, but I'm, I'm talking about suffering. I would, I would move heaven and earth to remove that suffering for them. And, and here, Pastor, you're telling me that the Father sees that on his children and allows it to stay there? That's seemingly what the Bible says. So how do we wrap our minds around this and reconcile it? Well, I think the, the reason we have such a hard time with this is we often have a vision of ourselves and really how devoted we would be and how much of an asset we would be to the kingdom if we were not suffering in some way. We tell ourselves, if we could just get past this busy season of life, then I'll get serious about my church involvement. Or if I could get past my depression that holds me down, then I would get in biblical community. Or if I could just get through this financial situation that's hard, then I could be generous with my finances. We think suffering is keeping us from sanctification. And we couldn't be more wrong. You see, suffering is not an obstacle to sanctification. It's an instrument of sanctification. God uses suffering in your life to sanctify you and mold you into the image of Jesus. You see, you learn to be most devoted to Christ when it's the hardest to be devoted to Christ. When everything in your flesh says just give up on your faith, that's when you lean in more. You learn to worship deepest when you're questioning God's plan. You learn to give generously when it hurts to give generously. You learn to read your Bible best when you need your Bible most. So stop waiting for suffering to end and acknowledge that God is molding you into something through it. And you'll change your viewpoint of it. And you'll be reminded in the gospel, as you look at the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, you'll be reminded that you are most like Christ when you're suffering. And none of us want suffering. None of us welcome suffering. But when we suffer, we find, we find rest. We find peace. We find an empathizer in Jesus Christ. And so the witness of Christ is that he 
also suffered. Look at the beginning of verse 18. Verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered. You're facing some trials today. You're not sure how some things are going to turn out. You're worried about some things. Christ also did those things, faced those things. You see, it really just drives me crazy when I see these prosperity preachers get on the internet or TV and begin to tell you you'll have the finest, nicest things and you'll be the healthiest, strongest, fastest, jump the highest. It's absurdity. It's absurd to me that that, that we think a heavenly father would willingly subject his only begotten son to an entire life of pain and poverty, yet call us to health and wealth. It's absurdity. And, and just this week, we received lots of questions through the app again about false teachers and how to call out false teachers and how to dis, you know, bring discernment to um, understanding if someone's teaching the true gospel or not. And, and one thing I'll tell you is to look at their motivations. If their motivation is to build a platform from themselves or if their motivation is to bring um, financial blessing to you or physical wellness to you, that's not what we're in the business of, church. We're dealing the gospel, not miracles. If it, and listen, I believe that the Lord does some mighty things, but, but we are subject to his will. The same, the same Bible that says he can heal us if he will, says that he can allow us to suffer if he wills. We fall at his feet and we subject ourselves to him because we know his plan is better than ours. And if you're wrestling through whether someone's a, a good or, or bad preacher, uh, I would just say, lean into your local church and ask us. It's literally your pastor's job to help you discern this, to help you know this. And I would remind you of motivations in the Gospel of Mark. We just finished preaching through the whole Gospel of Mark. Jesus walked away from crowd after crowd after crowd because they showed up wanting signs and wonders and miracles instead of the preaching of the Gospel. And Jesus said, my mission was to come preach the Gospel. And I would hate that we come to Jesus for the wrong motivations only to find that he's walked away from us. You see, the witness of Christ was not paving the way smooth and easy for you in your whole life. The witness of Christ was suffering for God's glory in this life, understanding that he's building a greater kingdom in the next. And Peter shows us this very real. Peter shows us. He writes to people who are, who are going to be arrested and killed for their faith. And he uses a type in scripture in Noah's flood. So let me read you verses 18 through 20. And, and, and it's going to feel a little bit, uh, as, as I kind of close the sermon, this last portion, it's going to feel like um, either me or Peter or both of us take a huge theological rabbit trail. Okay, So just buckle up. Uh, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. By the way, that's, that's a gospel reminder for you. If, if you're unclear of what the message of Christianity is, verse 19 is it. Or verse 18, I mean. It is, it is clear that Jesus is sufficient. He is our savior. He suffered. He died. The righteous for the unrighteous, bringing us to God. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And by the way, this isn't, a, um, uh, this isn't an approval of Gnosticism. Peter's not saying that he was only resurrected in spirit, not in flesh. He's saying he was resurrected by the spirit. That's what the language means there. That through the spirit, he was raised from the dead. 
And then verse 19, he says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. More about that in a moment. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, you got, you got prison mentioned, you got Jesus proclaiming something to spirits. Um, seemingly out of left field, Peter brings in Noah's ark, um, that story. And, and you might just be like, well, what's going on here? Well, so was I. Okay. Um, so I read some commentary on this. I actually found this interesting. Martin Luther, the great reformer the, that sparked the Protestant Reformation with his 95 Theses, in his commentary he writes this, A wonderful text is this. Good thing to say about the Bible. But he says, And a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> so if Martin Luther couldn't figure it out, don't put too much stock in Will Basham today, all right? I'm just giving you that, that disclaimer. But here, let, me, let me try to interpret what I, what I think is the position that Peter is putting out there and, and trying to, the point he's trying to make, and it's this, is that the witness of Christ is that through his suffering, that resulted in victory. That suffering in the flesh brought about spiritual victory. And this principle, he, he's, I believe he's applying not just to Jesus Christ, but then by practice to us in our lives. That just like the physical suffering of Jesus brought spiritual victory in the gospel, the physical suffering in our lives will make us look more like Jesus and result in spiritual victory in our lives and in the next. You see, then he goes and proclaims this to what Peter describes as the spirits in prison. Now this is interesting. Uh, what I interpret this to mean is there's lots of different views here. Um, and I don't, I don't think that we need to debate them all today, but um, I tend to think that this is a proclamation of victory to fallen angels, or what we would call demons. Um, we preached, again, a sermon on just the burial of Jesus, that between Jesus' death and on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday, that in his burial, I believe Jesus went to Sheol, Hades, the holding place for the dead, and there were um, angel, fallen angels there, demons, that God had put, as Peter describes it, in prison, held there, and I think Jesus, with the keys to death, hell, and the grave, shows up and just kind of shakes him and proclaims victory. That, that he is victorious over those things. Death, hell, and the grave. I'm Lord and Master, Jesus says to them. You see, these demons that had wreaked havoc all the way back in Genesis that in the days of the flood were now reminded of Jesus' victory and that they don't stand a chance. You see, these demons were punished by God, but Noah's family is brought in as an example, and they were saved by passing through water, which brings us to the last point, witness of baptism. Now, the witness of baptism we see in verse uh, 21. Um, sorry about that weird noise coming in there. Um, the witness of baptism we see begins in verse 21. Um, baptism, Peter says, corresponds to this. So when we see that Peter says baptism corresponds to this, he's relating it back to verse 20, which, which is the, the story of Noah's flood. And so I don't, I don't know if you've never really spent much time thinking about this, but it's interesting to think of your baptism, if you're a Christian, as, as relating to Noah's flood. And he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's rooting the baptism, our baptism as a ceremony in the gospel itself, really identifying it with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so Peter says that the New Testament sacrament of baptism was foreshadowed in the flood of Noah's day. Submersion in water always represents death. Um, most often led to actual physical death or drowning. You think of uh, the parting of the Red Sea, Moses uh, taking the children of Israel through the Red Sea, and the, and the sea collapses onto Pharaoh's army, and they die. In the flood of Noah's day, a flood waters cover the earth, and everyone dies in the waters. And so um, now in the new covenant, it is symbolic that when we are buried in water, our old selves are dying in that water. Never to be raised again, but rather we're raised in newness of life. And so baptism is one of the two sacraments we're given uh, as the church um, that are be carried out in the church. We're baptized uh, once to profess faith in Christ, and then we continually take communion to repent of sin and be in fellowship and relationship with Christ. Um, so baptism is, is not something that's supposed to be flippant. It's not something that's supposed to be done like a, like a drive-by type baptism. And I'm not talking about truck bed baptisms. I'm talking about baptism should happen in the church. The baptism should be carried out in a way that, that pastors know who they're baptizing, that the church family knows who's being baptized because it really is a, a celebration of someone joining the family of God, not some kind of superficial ceremony to make us feel better. It's a covenantal ceremony of creation and recreation. Let me show you that from the Bible. This is what Peter's getting at. Let me go back to all the way to Genesis 1.1. Very beginning of your Bible. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, what, what exactly that looked like? I've imagined that a million times. I don't know exactly what the earth was looking like as it was created. But we have this description at the end of verse 2 that says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so there's evidently water everywhere, a whole lot of water. And we see the Spirit of God hovering. The, the Hebrew word for hovering is rahaf, which means to brood or flutter. If I could just... Explain that in a redneck translation. Those are bird words. Okay, that's the, the spirit of God is described like a bird or like a like a mother hen laying on eggs or or a dove fluttering over the waters. So I want you to remember that water and a bird. Genesis eight, God floods the world with water. Once again, all the earth is covered with water. And what's Noah do? He sends out what? A dove. Genesis 8, 11, the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So again, you see water everywhere with a dove. Again, you see this theme in Matthew 3, when Jesus is baptized. Verse 16 says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out from the water. There you see water again, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The theme that Peter's getting at is the theme of creation. Creation in the beginning, recreation after the flood, rebirth in baptism. And so where communion is the biblical altar call, as I like to call it, baptism is the biblical profession of faith. Uh, when, when, when we planted our church, we used to, um, we used to have to report to uh, the people that gave us money to start the church. And, kind of, you know, they deserve to kind of know what's going on and, 
I had this report I would fill out that was, um, that, you know, put how many people came to church, how many people were baptized, how many people professed faith, that kind of thing. And, and what I began to notice was a lot of people would profess faith in that when I would preach a sermon and say, does anyone want to receive Jesus? Everybody, yeah, me. And then, and then when we went to baptize them, they wouldn't get baptized. And, and the professions of faith were always higher than the baptisms. And that bothered me to the point that I eventually started uh, just putting those numbers on my report, the same thing with a footnote at the bottom that said, baptism is the biblical profession of faith. The Greek word that's used in Peter um, in verse 21 when it says appeal, an appeal to God for a good conscience can also mean decree. It's a declaration when we're baptized, we are declaring that Jesus has saved us. Not that we're saving ourselves, but we are declaring that we're so serious about our faith because God has changed us. And Peter says that baptism, which corresponds to that passing through the water of Noah, now saves you. And this is a troubling thing, right? Is Peter saying that you have to be baptized to go to heaven? What about the thief on the cross? There's some questions that come up from this. And, and I, I don't think that Peter's saying you have to be baptized to be saved. He's not, he's not making baptism part of salvation. I would deny that. But what I do think is that baptism is so important, and it's such the prescribed profession of faith in the Bible, that Peter had no problem putting salvation and baptism together. I, I could describe it in this way. In the summer of 2005, I'm going to date myself. In the summer of 2005, I graduated from high school. Some of you are like, he's a young buck. Some of you are like, he's an old man. All right, it's fine. But in the summer of 2005, it, it's perfectly linguistically, grammatically correct to say on that day, I graduated from high school. But was the work done to get out of Hamlin High School done on that day? No. There's actually no work done. I practiced for the ceremony, but the only thing I did was put on a cap and gown and walk across the stage, and people clapped for me when they announced my name. We had a big party on the farm in Lincoln County. The work had been done the 12 years prior to that. The studying, the tests, the papers written, the education, and the knowledge. Now, in baptism, we're not acknowledging work that you've done, but we're acknowledging the work of another. And so when we baptize someone, we celebrate it like a graduation. We celebrate it as a commemoration of the fact that the work has been done, not by them, but by Jesus. I remember one time we were baptizing this woman in our church, and I was talking to her about how weird baptism is. Can we just, as Christians, admit baptism is weird? That's okay, right? It's weird. Like it, when, when we were kids, we used to dunk people underwater to embarrass them, to show dominance over them and whatnot. That's just, we were rowdy, and that's what we did. But God has ordained a, a, a pretty radical ceremony to show your commitment to Christ. Like, it's easy to kind of like every head bowed and every eye closed, raise your hand if you love Jesus. Like, yeah, anybody can do that at a camp meeting. But the word of God says be baptized. That means you're going to get in front of the church and be dunked underwater. That takes a little bit of serious commitment, doesn't it? And so we were conversing and talking about that. And she said, here's the reason I'm hesitant. I love Jesus, but I really, really don't like being the center of attention. And I, and I understand that. Well, I don't understand that. I love being the center of attention. But you know what I mean. I understood where she was coming from. And, and so I, I said, listen, in your baptism, I know it could feel like that, but you are not the center of attention. Jesus is. We're not celebrating. When we, when we hoop and holler when someone gets dunked, we're not celebrating them as much as we're celebrating Jesus saving them. 
the work of redemption that God has brought about in their life. And this is why Peter tied those things together in, in the, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter Peter's theology is not whack. He understood exactly what it took to be saved. He understood what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, that it's by grace that we're saved, not through works. So much so that in chapter 1 of this letter, he calls the people he's writing to elect. That means that they're chosen before the foundation of the world by God. He calls them uh, believers who were caused to be born again. He doesn't say that they chose God. Rather, he says God caused them to be born again. He understands the preeminence of God. But he ties baptism to it, not because believers are being baptized to earn favor with God, but because believers are being baptized because God has told them to do it. And he's so sure that true believers, when they repent, will follow the commands of Jesus. Because Jesus, when we get saved, here's what we acknowledge, that Jesus is the one of what verse 22 speaks of, that he is the one who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, and angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He's the one with the keys. He's the one that proclaimed victory to demons. He's the one that rose from the dead. He's the one that accomplished our salvation. And our baptism isn't celebrating us, but rather our baptism celebrates the one who died on a cross and rose from the dead to save us. That's what Peter speaks of. And if you're like on the fence with this, maybe you've been attending church for a while, and, and you know, maybe, maybe you've been thinking about baptism, maybe not, but l let me just say, here's your sign, okay? God takes this ordinance very seriously, and it is an act of grace in your life. And if you have repented of sin and love Jesus, the Bible is clear. You need to be baptized in the church for his glory. And if you have been baptized, I want you to rest in that baptism because everything that it signified was Christ's victory in your life. There's no work left to be done. There's nothing you have to do to prove yourself. He's not, he's not burning you with some kind of expectation you can never live up to. You are sound and secure in him who holds all authority. And so those of us who have professed faith in that declaration, that decree of baptism, we come to the table. We come to the place that brothers and sisters and sons and daughters come to. We come to the table to belong to a family with a good father who has brought us home. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.